The text this morning is Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. These are the words of God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together like this. We thank you that your word is with us. We thank you that your spirit is with us. We thank you that we are permitted by your grace to be with one another. We commit all this to you, asking you to teach, admonish, instruct us. We ask you to do it through your word, according to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if Satan could successfully get us all to believe just one lie, what would that lie be? If Satan could get us to believe just one thing, what would that one thing be? Is there an aboriginal lie, one that rests at the root of every twisted thought or desire that we might have? And there is a scriptural answer to that particular question. The assumption behind the first question posed to our first mother contained that foundational lie. That, that assumption was not the question, but that assumption was what was underneath the question. The question was, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say that you couldn't eat from any tree? God actually had said that they could eat from every tree but one. But the devil asked, the serpent said, did God say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The lying assumption embedded underneath that question was that God was not ultimately good and that he did not have the best for his creatures in mind. Does God really have your best interest in mind? That's the foundational lie. That's the aboriginal lie. That's the foundation of every form of deceit. God is not really godlike. God is not really true. God is not genuinely love. The primeval lie, therefore, is that God is not to be trusted. The primeval lie is that God is not to be trusted. And of course, the foundational issue that we are called to as Christians is to believe in God, trust God. So this is the fundamental collision between justification by faith on the one hand, which says, trust God, believe his word, and the lie on the other side says God is not to be trusted. The primeval lie is to encourage us to have hard and erroneous thoughts about God. That's the primeval lie, to have hard and erroneous thoughts about God. So let's consider this text from Isaiah 55, and we're going to see this, uh, we're going to see this issue in high relief in this text. The great problem with a text like this one is that we hear the lofty words. The, the words are grand. The words are high. My, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And we immediately default to our factory settings. We immediately assume that we know what God is saying here. Well, God is way up there. God is way high. God is the transcendent God. And, of course, he is going to deal with us strictly. But our factory settings were established for us in the fall. And entertaining such thoughts were, in fact, the cause of the fall. Entertaining hard thoughts about God and his character were the cause of the fall. And ever since the fall, we have easily gone back to that 
foundational assumption. But if we are believers, we tell ourselves that our hard thoughts of God are actually high thoughts about God, but this is not the case. We, we tell ourselves that our hard thoughts about God are really high thoughts about his holiness and his transcendence, but this is not the case. I want you to consider what we find in the surrounding verses surrounding this text. The text tells us that God does not think the way we do. God does not think the same way that we do, and we need to remember that this applies in the first instance to how we read texts like this one. How does this apply to our reading of texts like this one? God's thoughts are not like ours, and his ways are not like ours. That's in verse 8. The heavens are much higher than the earth, it says, and God's ways and thoughts are that much higher than our ways and thoughts. We are on the earth. Here you are on the grass. Here you are on the ground. And God's thoughts are transcendently high. His thoughts, are, his thoughts and ways are far above, far above us. But here's the problem. This is the difficulty. Define higher. What does it mean to be higher? And do it without defaulting to your factory settings. The context of this wonderful passage is not what many would anticipate. Seek the Lord while he may be found, it says in verse 6. Seek the Lord that he may be while he may be found, verse 6. Call on him while he is near, verse 6. If the wicked and unrighteous man forsakes his way, what will God then do? He will have mercy on him, verse 7. If a wicked man, if a really bad man, if a wicked man, if an unrighteous man forsakes his wicked way and comes back to the father, the way the prodigal son came back to his father, what will God do? This high and lofty one, whose ways are not like ours, will have mercy. <laughs> we think that, well, we have mercy and he doesn't because his ways are not. It's, that's exactly a photo negative. God's ways are far above us. We're the ones that don't show mercy. We're the ones who are unforgiving. We're the ones who, when someone comes back having wronged us, we don't want to put it right. God is not like that. God will have mercy on everyone who comes to him. If a vile man comes to God, this God will abundantly pardon, it says in verse 7. The verse right before, my thoughts are not your thoughts, God, this God will abundantly pardon. And why is this? Because God doesn't think the way that we do, or the way the devil does for that matter. God doesn't function the way we do. God is not, God is altogether righteous, but God is not self-righteous the way the devil is. God is not self-righteous the way we are. God's words of pardon, God's words of mercy come down on the earth like the rain and the snow that give moisture to the earth. Verse 10, a refreshing rain. That's, that's how God thinks. That's God's ways. His mercy, his pardon, rained down on the earth like a refreshing rain, like, a, like the snow cap that, that feeds the fields. God's rain and snow gives moisture to the earth, and God's forgiveness is like that. Verse 10. Forgiveness grows things. Forgiveness grows things. Green and luxuriant. Verse 10. God's words of forgiveness are not impotent. Verse 11. God's word will not fail. God's words will accomplish that which they were set out to do. God's words will prosper. It will accomplish God's intentions. 
It will result in songs of salvation. After you interact with the God whose ways are not your ways, whose thoughts are not your thoughts, after you interact with him, what you do is you come away singing. Our salvation will be an everlasting sign, it says in verse 13, that shall not be cut off. Why? Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. He is a God who is altogether merciful. He is a God who is full of pardon. He is a God who forgives the very worst. God is like that. And when we, can, when we say God is like that, we, we see that he, his ways are not ours. His thoughts are not ours. The natural man, man, the carnal man, the natural man can believe that Almighty God can squash him like a bug. But confronted with a passage like this, we tend to think, when we, if we just looked at verses 8 and 9 by themselves, confronted with a passage like this, we tend to think that the text is saying that we should always remember that God can squash, squash us a lot flatter than that. Imagine how flat he could squash you, and then this text says he could do even worse. <coughs> when we focus on the greatness of Almighty God, we revert to thinking of him as the ultimate Zeus, a storm god who wields fistfuls of thunder, lightning, and blue ruin. And there are passages in Scripture that do talk this way. But we always have to remember to interpret Scripture in the light of Scripture, and we have to remember the many passages where we have the, the true greatness of God revealed to us in this glorious kind of juxtaposition. God is high and God is low. God is high and God is low. God is transcendent and God is imminent. Where does God dwell? He dwells, according to the prophet Isaiah, in two places. Isaiah 57, just a couple chapters later. For thus saith the high and lofty one, there it is again, God's way, he's high and above us. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. What is this saying? It says that God dwells in the high and holy place and he also dwells in the contrite and humble place. God dwells in the highest heaven and God dwells in the lowest heart. And how can he do this? He functions this way. He can, we can have this kind of glorious juxtaposition because his ways are not our ways. We want to go one way or the other. We either go low and stay low, and that's sort of an antinomian, just roll around in your sin, or we want to go high, <coughs> which for creatures, <laughs> creatures amounts to self-righteousness. God is the only one who can bring these two things together. Why? Because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is full of tender mercies. He combines in his person high and low. He combines in his person holiness and mercy. And he's the only one that can do this. God is the only one who can be high and low at the same time, who can receive the humble and the contrite, who can at the same time be the ultimate standard of ultimate holiness and goodness. The men of Christ's generation didn't get much right, but they did get one thing straight. Christ was the friend of sinners. 
In Luke 7, verse 34, when they're talking, of, when uh, Christ is describing uh, how they reacted, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a glutton and a drunkard, is what Jesus was accused of being, and a friend of publicans and sinners. That was the charge against Christ. He is a friend of sinners, and that was true. That was true enough. The father of the prodigal son was looking down the road, longing for the return of his wastrel son. When he saw him coming back, bedraggled and humiliated, what did the father do? He ran down the road, it says, and embraced him. And thus we have the parable of the running father. He then ordered the fatted calf to be killed, and he ordered party clothes to be put upon this loser son, and he hired a very loud band, one that the older brother could hear out in the driveway. Did this father think that what this loser son really needed was another party? Yes, apparently so. For someone who just returned from spending his entire inheritance on hookers and cocaine? Apparently so. What did, this father, what did this father do? He ran down the road, and he hired a band, and he had a party, and he put party clothes on this loser. And just, just before this parable, in Luke 15, the Lord told another, uh, there are three parables about uh, losing things. The, uh, the, the one right before is the parable about the lost coin. The Lord told this parable about the lost coin, and he concludes it this way. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Luke 15, 10. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Notice, he doesn't say that the angels rejoice, although I dare say they do. All right, it's not, it doesn't say they don't, but that's not what the expression is. It doesn't say the angels rejoice. It doesn't say the angels have a party when a sinner repents. It says there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. So, who would be doing that? Who would be doing that but God himself? God himself rejoices over repentance. When we screw up again and repent again, This brings God joy. Why? Because his ways are not our ways. When someone comes back to you having sinned against you for the twelfth time, does there you see them coming over to your house again to apologize to you again? (laughs) Does the sight of them bring you joy? No, not usually. Or if it does, it's be at the end of a process, you have to work through it. You have to you have to process this. I don't think this person is dealing with the root issues. That's what you're telling yourself. I don't think they were. And why is that happening? Why do you have to struggle to get to that place where you receive them with gladness? Because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Who would be rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God but God himself? In Zephaniah 3.17, it says, The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. When God looks at you coming to him again 
needing forgiveness again, needing to be cleaned up again, needing to have your sin dealt with again, what does God do? He receives you gladly. He abundantly pardons. He has mercy and despair. God is an infinite ocean of mercy. No, no shores on either side, no bottom, and no surface. God is infinitely merciful. God is inf- He is simply like that. So, consequently, the fear of God is not what we think. The fear of God is something that is commanded in Scripture. We are supposed to fear God. We're supposed to be God-fearing people. But we want to remember that we're not to be God-fearing people according to our factory settings. We are not to be God-fearing people according to our own definition of what fear is. Left to our own devices, we're going to say something like, well, fear fear is this uh, thing that is afraid of God squashing you like a bug because you deserve to be squashed like a bug. And that's true. We all, we're by nature objects of wrath. That's true that that's what we deserve. That's what we deserve. Scripture calls us to a life of moral rectitude. God wants us to walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel of grace. We don't want to give an inch to any kind of moral disorder. Romans 6, 1 through 4. We don't get to say we're saved by grace. Let's sin that grace may abound. Of course not. We are not antinomians. But the grace of God does not encourage moral disorder. And the fear of God is not craven. The fear of God is not something that crawls. Isaiah, again, this is Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. And it's a passage that's talking about the Messiah. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Remember, this is the Messiah. This is Christ. Christ fears the Lord. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Notice what it says next. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. The grace of God is liberty in Christ. The grace of God sets you free. The grace of God sets you free. That's what God is up to. Why? Because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He wants to liberate us, and he wants to liberate us from things that have kept us in chains for weeks or months or years. It is not the death of legalism. We don't want to, we have to remember that the devil is self-righteous. The devil is self-righteous. The devil thinks he's got a point. The devil is an accuser. The devil wants to say, you are a sinner. I'm not the sinner. You're the sinner. The devil wants to be like that. So we don't, want, we don't want to fall into the trap of that kind of legalism. But neither do we want to fall into the disorder of licentiousness, which says, well, we're all sinners. What does it matter? The grace of God covers it. We don't want a low view of sin, and we don't want a high view of ourselves. We don't want a low view of sin. We don't want a high view of ourselves. What we have to understand is that God is absolutely holy, 
and that that holiness includes his abundant willingness to pardon repentant sinners. Broken sinners, messed up sinners, sinners who did it again. So consequently, we don't want to veer into legalism. We don't want to veer into licentiousness. We want to walk in liberty. We want to walk in liberty. And I want to say a word here to uh, you young people, those of you who are growing up in this congregation, who are growing up in this community, and who have never known anything different. One of, the things that, one of the things that you will notice, you will have noticed looking around you, is that there are high expectations, high academic expectations, high moral expectations, high cultural expectations. We want, we want people to walk right. We want people to walk upright. We want you to grow up loving the standard, not conforming to the standard, muttering while you do, but loving the standard. But the, here's the difficulty. Many of you young people know you've looked inside your own thoughts. You've looked inside your own heart. You know things about your heart that your mom doesn't, right? You know things that are going on down there that wouldn't do to share at the dinner table. You know that. So what do you do? You just have to put a lid on it because look at the community you're, you're in. Everybody cleans up real nice for church. Everybody goes and they... And we sing the songs, and it's a God-honoring service, and you look around, and everybody appears to have taken a shower. We're all, we all are doing pretty good. And you are tempted to think, and I know that you're tempted to think this, because this is a perennial temptation for kids growing up in a community with good, solid standards of holiness. You think you're the worst sinner that ever lived. You think that if anybody else here knew what I'm up to, if anybody here knew the way I think, if anybody here knew the condition of my heart, they'd chase me down the road throwing rocks after me. That's not the case. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is with us, and his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God wants you to be free from your sin. He doesn't want to wrap your sin around your neck so he can accuse you of it. What he wants to do is liberate you from the sin. He wants to set you free. And setting you free means you must understand the gospel. And in order to understand the gospel, you have to understand the heart of Christ. You can't understand the heart of the gospel without understanding the heart of Christ. He came to die on a cross so that he could forgive you. So that he could forgive you. How much does he want to forgive you? He wants to forgive you more than you feel like you want to be forgiven. He wants to deal with your sin more than you want your sin to be dealt with. So, this is the grace of God. This is the way of God. What is it that can enable a man to stand upright in his moral integrity and to have that moral stand be saturated in grace? That's the difficulty. How can we stand upright? How can we walk in holiness? How can we walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel by which we've been called and then not be have pinched faces where we're just accusing everybody else of not living up to our standard? I just got to this level. I just got to level 17 of the holy Christian life last year, but I'm going to condemn everybody who's not here already. I'm going to accuse. Well, if, if that's the case, you haven't gotten to level 17 of your sanctification. What you've gotten to is a diabolical level. That kind of accusation is the kind of ways and thoughts that God doesn't have. 
God's not like that. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. So we want to, how can someone be upright? How can someone be truly holy? How can someone be truly moral and yet be attractive to sinners? Why? Why on earth would sinners, why on earth would prostitutes and tax collectors, why on earth would collaborators with the Roman enemy be attracted to Jesus? And why were the Pharisees repelled by him? The Pharisees were the ones who had their act together. That's why they were repelled by him. They wanted wanted a Messiah who would come down and accuse in line with their accusations. They wanted a Messiah who would be the head Pharisee. But he's not. And yet, people, people whose lives were a train wreck would follow him. And everything comes down to this, doesn't it? Everything comes down to this. What do you make of Christ? Are you, um, is your fear, is your fear a craven fear? Well, if it's a craven fear, then it wants to go away. It wants to put distance between you and Christ. If it is a, an evangelical fear, the kind of fear that is going to be perfect in heaven, the kind of fear that the Messiah delighted in, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. When we get to heaven, our fearing together, our corporate fear of God is going to be perfect. Right? Our fear of God now is just, we have the tiniest little buds of it. When we finally get to glory, the fear of God is going to be in full bloom. Christ is, so when Christ comes, some people are repelled by him. Some people want to kill him. Some people want to dispute with him. Some people, when, as, as when he uh, performed the miracle of the gathering swine, and he cast out the, the demons from Legion, and the demons went into the swine, and they went down into the lake and drowned. The people came out, and they saw Jesus. They saw what he had done. And what did they say? Go away. We don't want this kind of trouble here. We don't want people getting cleaned up. We don't want this madman dressed and in his right mind. That unsettles us. We prefer the devil we know to a forgiven, cleansed, demoniac. So they said, go away. At the same time, when Jesus went to other places, mobs of sinners were attracted to him. Unclean lepers, people who were, un, who were moral lepers, would come to him and he would put them right. When the paralytic is brought to him, he not only heals him of his paralysis, but he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven you. So Christ is what it looks like. We all want to know what it looks like, and the answer is Christ. Christ is what this looks like. Christ is perfect. Christ is sinless. Christ is holy. And he manages to be sinless and upright and righteous and holy in a way that's attractive to messed up people. Is that where you are? Are you messed up? And is Christ attractive? Those are the two, those are the only two questions. Are you a mess? And is Christ attractive? So, We all want to know what it looks like, and so to see what it looks like, we are summoned to look to the only place where it has been perfectly done, and that is in Christ crucified and risen. So all of this is all about forgiveness. All of this is all about forgiveness. In Psalm 130, verse 4, this is another one of those great juxtaposition passages. 
In Psalm 130, verse 4, it says this, But there is forgiveness with thee, but there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. There's forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. There is a fear that's craven, that wants Jesus to go away. You, you healed the demoniac, go away, go away. That's, that's, the kind of love, that's the kind of fear that love casts out. 1 John says, perfect love casts out fear. That fear that, fear that tells Jesus to go away, that, that fear is unbecoming to a Christian. But there's another kind of fear that the Christian is ushered into by experiencing forgiveness. There is forgiveness with you that thou mayest be feared. There is forgiveness. All the accounts are wiped clean. All that gunk in your heart is taken away. When we confess our sins in the service and we kneel, and we're not trying to blow sunshine at anybody, we're just saying, God, I'm a mess. God, I've sinned. God, I've failed. You know what God does? He breaks out into a musical. Zephaniah says he rejoices over you with singing. You know why we sing? We sing because he does. Why do we forgive one another? We forgive because he does. Why do we show mercy to one another? Because he does. This is, this is the whole point. Christ, Christ is the heart of the gospel. The heart of Christ is the heart of the gospel. The heart of Christ expresses the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. His heart tells us why he did what he did. And why he did what he did was to bring you home, to put you right. And he's got a hold of you. You might as, go, might as well go quietly. You might as well cooperate. That's what the Christian life is, learning to cooperate with the inexorable grace of God. And he is infinitely patient with those who admit what they're doing. He's infinitely pa- patient with those who confess their fault honestly. There are people who harden their hearts. There are people who want him to go away. There are people who say, no, I'm not going to admit that I sin. I'm not going to admit that I sin in this area. Or I, I'm, I, I, want to deal, I want to deal with a God whose ways are like our ways, whose thoughts are like my thoughts. Well, the problem with that is when you, wind, when you get to the end of that road, you find out that the God you wanted to deal with that way, that God is actually the devil and he is full of accusation. When you come home to the Father, you find that your Father is full of mercy. So this is what we say every week when we, when we have the Lord's uh, table together, when we celebrate the Lord's table. We say, and we're not just saying this is not just our liturgical tagline, but it's come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Are you a mess? Then you qualify. Are you, do you have things in your past that would embarrass pretty much anybody? Then you qualify. Is your thought life nothing to be proud of? Then you qualify. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. He, when when he called you, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was getting. He knew that the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to address whatever's going on with you. The only thing you have to do is come, not go. The only thing you have to do is come to Christ, and you come to Christ on the basis of his shed blood, his burial in accordance with the scriptures, and his resurrection from the dead. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the kindness that you've shown to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for all that you give us. Father, as we present 
everything that we have to you, as we assemble before you, as we resolve to be more like you and forgiving one another, learning to, learning to exhibit your thoughts and ways. Father, we would do this by repeating back to you the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, In Deuteronomy 5, Moses recounts the giving of the Ten Commandments. God had summoned Israel up to Sinai to meet with him, to hear the whole law by his own voice. When he descended with thunder and fire, holy terror gripped the people. They begged Moses to go meet with God as their mediator. They had been invited as a kingdom of priests to the foot of Sinai, but the glory of God struck such awe in them that they dared proceed no further up the mountain. They saw that their brightest works of holiness were but opaque shadows. The people weren't chastised by the Lord, but rather commended. The lesson was learned. They needed a mediator. So Moses met with the Lord face to face on behalf of all Israel. Yet still the Lord revealed in this episode his desire to commune with all his people. All of this was preparatory for the ascent of God's people up another hill. The hill of Zion, which we ascend each Lord's day, isn't less in glory, it is more glorious in every way. While we still need a mediator, the difference is that the mediator of the new covenant brings us in himself. We come because Jesus brings us with him, for we are in him. At this table, we commune with God face to face atop the holy hill of heavenly Jerusalem. Not one of us is holy enough to ascend by our own merit, nor is a single one of us too far gone so as to be left at the base of the hill. If you are in Christ, then he brings you, every last one of you, from the least to the greatest, to commune with God Almighty here at this table, here in this bread and wine. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks that by Christ, you bring us to yourself to meet with you, to fellowship with you. We tremble with joy for you have showed us your favor and grace by inviting us in, forgiving our sins, and uniting us with yourself for all the ages. We give thanks in Jesus' name, and amen. The charge is this. Well, this is great. This is glorious, seeing all these cars and seeing all of you row by row. Uh, and let's be honest, this is great fun. Uh, this is an incomplete picture of what we enjoy in the gospel. The gospel message is this. There isn't a back row. By Christ, each of us are, as it were, on the front row. No true child of God is stuck in the back row. By God's grace, each of us enjoy all of Christ for all of life. So here with believing hearts, the benediction of our Father. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us an ever everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And amen.